What does a defeated enemy do? When absolutely everything the enemy does is futile, what options does a clearly defeated enemy have? Well, there's surrender and there's desperate destruction. Our great enemy exists with such delusion and such hatred for the inevitable victory and glorification of God. He hates God so much that he has no real option. Alas, he resorts to the only option he has left, desperate destruction. He's going to take anyone he can down with him. Ultimately, it's self-destruction. Chapter 11, verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen in, the, in his temple. There were flashes of lightning and rumbles, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. At the very center of his book, John records the vision that reveals the deepest dimension of the church's spiritual conflict, the battle. The Ark of the Covenant was seen in the temple. This was the most concentrated, potent symbol of God's very presence. And what do we see there in the most concentrated space of God's own presence? Storms coming. Each of the next three weeks, we're looking at the deepest dimension of the cosmic conflict. First, this week, we're looking at the battle. Second, in God's victory amidst rebellion. And third, in the utter futility and fall of rejectors. You want to understand salvation history and spiritual warfare and eternal victory from God's perspective? Here it is. Today, over three chapters, chapters 12, 13, and 14, we're exploring the message of the open scroll in greater depth, an exploration full of signs and symbols, and John actually calls them signs and symbols, meaning these things are representations of unseen realities. There's an important statement, reminder, or even disclaimer that, that I feel is kind of important to include right here, right, right at this point in our whole Revelation study. Whenever we find ourselves taking scriptural realities symbolically, whenever we say, oh, this is representative or this is symbolic, it's important that we make clear that that doesn't mean we take everything in scripture symbolically. If you're in apocalyptic literature or artistic poetry, there's more symbolism that's active there than if you're in historic accounts or gospel narratives or the New Testament epistles. So while we have been encountering things largely representative and symbolic in Revelation, that's because we're dealing with an apocalyptic book. Well, who says it's apocalyptic? <laughs> That'd be the author, John. Chapter one, verse one, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And then here again in chapter 12, calling these things signs. Okay, disclaimer over. Just because we're taking this symbolically doesn't mean we take everything symbolically. Revelation is an apocalyptic literature book. That's why we're taking it this way. 
Seeing all these signs play out in the scroll beginning in in chapter 12 is a manifestation of this ancient conflict that began all the way back in the garden in Genesis 3, as far as our accounts tell us. We've got the serpent, the can't quit, won't cease, malevolent beast, pictured here in chapter 12 as a dragon, as a dragon. Verse 9 tells us other names and identities for this picture of the fullness of evil in all its hideous strength. The great dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Why a dragon? Well, you'll never guess, but it actually draws from the Old Testament. Shocking. (laughs) I have a bit of homework for you um, that I regrettably don't have time for unless you want this teaching to be a time and a half of teaching. Um, So go ahead, and if you haven't already, read Job 41 on your own or together with others. Job 41, it's like a biblical trip to the Shire or Narnia or something like that. Job 41 pictures a great reptilian sea monster called Leviathan. Now, Leviathan draws on stories of a mythical, multi-headed creature, a crocodile, snake, dragon-like being, maybe like a multiple-headed Godzilla or something like that. It's a fascinating, intimidating, terrifying presence that we read about. And God is its slayer. Man, where are these verses that I'm about to read on coffee mugs? Psalm 74, verses 13 through 14. You, God, divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Isaiah 27, 1. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon in the sea. I know we're not really seeing pitchforks here, but this is the great enemy. This is Satan. This is the great serpent, the deceiver, and God is its slayer, his end, his conqueror. And still, what does a clearly defeated enemy do? He fights. Chapter 12 continues. The woman was pregnant, and behold, the great red dragon stood before the woman so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. More scenes we probably shouldn't show in Timber Kids. Verse 7, war arose in heaven. The enemy who is cosmically defeated by Michael and other angels. I wish we had a, a picture of these scenes. What did it look like for Michael and the angels to defeat the great serpent? Destined only to battle on earth. And he sees where his real threat on earth is going to come from. Born of mankind, one who will rule. 
And in my translation, it, it has a note that that word rule also could be translated shepherd, one who will shepherd. There's a nod to just who this, this child is representing. God's got something about lambs, sheep, shepherds. And before the dragon can accomplish his, his violent plan to consume and destroy the child that will be his threat, chapter 12, verse 5 says the child is caught up to God and his throne, where he proves ever victorious and out of reach of the enemy. And the dragon is so unyielding, so hell-bent on attacking the woman and her seed, that's drawing from some imagery back in Joseph's dream in Genesis 37, representing Israel, the people of God. But when the dragon is cosmically conquered by Michael and the angelic force in God's space and, and thrown down to earth, there or here, he breeds hatred and violence bringing nations along with him in his beast-like purposes and nature. There on earth, or here on earth, the enemy tries every desperate thing he can to kill and deceive the offspring of the woman. When you're, when you're reading this, it can be kind of icky to have like the enemy's playbook, but at least we know what he's after. In verse 16, as he wages war... God causes even the earth to come to the help of the woman against the enemy. You can't defeat an all-powerful God. He will employ angels in your defeat. He will employ even his creation, the earth, to swallow up your efforts. And he will especially prove your defeat as his people conquer the great beast by resisting his influence, even if it kills him. Martyrs are the special forces in the army of the Lamb. Let me say that again. Martyrs are the special forces in the army of the Lamb. Martyrs are the ones that demonstrate that the absolute worst that the enemy can do is kill us. That's the worst he can do. And just as Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, chapter 1, verse 5, so too, through Revelation, the martyrs are raised up and vindicated, given special prominence and celebration in the kingdom, essentially showing the enemy, see, here we stand. You can't win. See, church, humans are never the real, ultimate enemy. Even Rome, even those that are to be resisted, there are forces to be resisted that are of the enemy. And they are conquered through the blood of the Lamb, proving that their battle is futile. Not proving for their sake, because their enmity is definite, but that those that align with them and those that are tempted by them might see how futile their efforts really are and repent. Never forget what we encountered last week in chapter 9. 
Chapter 13 picks up the same conflict from the earthly realities at play. And here we see two beasts. This is drawing from Daniel 7 verses, or sorry, Daniel chapter 7 through 12 with some pretty crazy imagery itself, but, but you're at least halfway there in understanding what's really going on there as you're going through this study. One beast comes representing military power the other representing economic propaganda machine that exalts earthly realities as divine, all that matters, as a false prophet. By the way, side note here, for those of us that are, that are kind of awaiting the Antichrist to pop on the scene at any moment here, you're not going to see that name, that title in Revelation. Antichrist, that term, that name, does not appear in the book of Revelation. It appears in 1 John and 2 John as an ultimate deceiver with blasphemous and and wicked messages and temptations. And so in Revelation language, I believe that's the beast, the false prophet here. Verse 11, the beast's blasphemous calls are demands for worship. Demands for pledges of allegiance, not just for a single individual, but for the world powers that wage the enemy's war. With power to overwhelm people, I imagine this is someone that that carries themselves quite winsomely and attractively and drawing all people of all nations to put their faith and allegiance and hope in him even mimicking the slain, still-standing lamb. The beast, we read, seemed to have a mortal wound, but was healed, causing the whole world to marvel. There's this unholy anti-trinity. You got the first beast of chapter 13, the second beast as a false prophet, and then the great dragon with deceit and misdirection just stealing tactics from their opponent's playbook. The enemy can't really come up with anything original on its own. But stealing from the lamb, that'll do. (laughs) And he's gonna really employ this mimicking again with the most infamous number known to mankind. Six, six, six. We'll get to that in a bit. This is a time of very great and terrifying deception because deception is about the only tool that the beast has left at its disposal. The great deception of this age is that Satan knows mankind needs a savior, someone to worship. So he sets up anyone and anything that might appear impressive or powerful or demand allegiance from them. So that in their desperation for worship, mankind will worship. They might give in to a lie. And many do. They find nations, saviors, objects of worship, and they say, this is our God. It's a wicked deception, the enemy's plan. Does it sound familiar? Does it sound relevant right there? Seem like this may be the point in the scroll in which we find ourselves today? 
a time of great deception and seemingly dwindling hope, where people align themselves with cheap knockoff imitations of centers of value and identity. They can even assume their own identity. It's a lure of the enemy, and it's active in deceiving people in our world today. Know what it is, church. Endure. That is why we have blatant, clearly presented statements of Revelation's ultimate purpose right in the middle of chapter 13, at the end of verse 10. If you're taking notes, these would be lines to focus on. Chapter 13, verse 10. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints in the midst of this great time of deception when it seems like hope is dwindling. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Then it's echoed once more just a handful of verses later in chapter 14, verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Don't be deceived, people of the seven churches. In this great time of despair, dwindling hope, don't lose your ultimate allegiance and confidence that God will be victorious. It's the enemy that is fighting a losing battle, not the church. Hold fast, endure. Each of the beasts demand total allegiance. Both small and great, both rich and poor, both slave and free are marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom, John says, the author, not me. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man. And his number is 666. Seems like we gotta turn around three times and spit on the floor or something like that. Scary stuff there, 666. This is why people will, will hear that and they'll, they'll very quickly rush to newspaper headlines, like we have newspapers anymore. <laughs> they'll find the mark of the beast everywhere in our world today. And I'm not sure they're wrong, at least not symbolically. Want to know what 666, the mark of the beast, represents? Look very carefully at chapter 13 again. John takes on the language of, of a math teacher here. <laughs> okay, smart people, add it up. Calculate the number of the beast. You're gonna to have to do some numerical adding up here and the number is a man, he says. It's a riddle. It's like a math problem because Hebrew letters are also numbers. The number is a man. If you take the name Nero Caesar, a name striking fear into the heart of every person of these seven churches, first century readers, if you take the name Nero Caesar and you also take the name Beast, they each add up to 666. 
Nero's a beast, John is saying. Nero is the economic and militaristic battle plan of the dragon being played out right now in your very lives. Believers in Ephesus and Smyrna and Philadelphia and Thyatira and Sardis and uh, Pergamum and Laodicea. You're in this battle with the beast right now. Now, the mark of the beast and 666 is not meaning that Nero is the only representation of the beast. Nero is an example of a pattern that is set up all the way back in Babylon by Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar that the nations themselves become beasts when they exalt themselves and demand total allegiance. So Babylon represented this in Daniel's day to be followed by Persia and Greece and now Rome in John's day. And this is why applications of the mark of the beast to today may not be completely off base. Because any nation becomes beast-like when they exalt themselves and demand total allegiance of their people. That's what the mark of the beast is. This continues to apply to any nation, any society that acts in the same way. But we're not completely done solving this math problem yet, this riddle yet, in case you feel like, ah, we just cracked that mystery of 666. Because... It's where the mark of the beast was to be placed that has major echoes for the first century readers. You and I might have focused on those numbers. They would have stopped and in their tracks when they heard where the mark of the beast was going to go. Total allegiance. Everyone. Rich, poor, slave, free. You can't buy or sell without this mark. Everyone needs the mark on their hand or the forehead. And the first century believer is going to go, wait, wait. We've heard something like that before. Ah, the enemy's stealing from God's playbook again. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 8. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Yeah, emphasis mine at the end there. <laughs> the dragon's opposer. God demands total allegiance of your thoughts, forehead, and of your actions, your hand. God does not use military oppression or economic manipulation. He uses love. He asks for love. He wants his message of love to be written on your hand, your actions, and on your forehead, your thoughts, and in the space between your eyes. That'd be your forehead, for those of you that are anatomically challenged. Man, 
This is the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 8. This is the greatest commandment in the whole Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You shall bind these words as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And 666 is the anti-Shema. Loyalty to anything other than Yahweh. That's why it's very relevant in our world today, the mark of the beast. The anti-Shema. What a deceiver. Takes the good stuff of God and just twists it. Add it all up, people, John says. Stay ultimately loyal to your faith, your true allegiance, your true love. He's about had it with the deception of the serpent. Chapter 14. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads the army of the slain lamb. And I heard a voice from heaven like a roar of many waters and like a sound of loud thunder. This is getting dramatic. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before four living creatures and before the elders. <laughs> Harp players? You don't play harps as a battle cry. (laughs) Nope. The sound of harps is peacemaking music. The sound of harps would be heard echoing throughout the temple. These first century readers, get this, they would read, they would hear what we just read, and they would immediately hear songs calling upon worship music. This is not what it sounds like ahead of a battlefield, like the battle hymn of the Republic or, or a military drumline or something like that. This is what it sounds like in the temple. Modern translation, this is what it sounds like when I go to church. I want you to picture this. Maybe even close your eyes if it helps for a moment. The army of the Lamb, the 144,000 assembled on Mount Zion with the Lamb, with the name of the Father on their foreheads. And it's like it's this pregame hype song or a military drum roll swells their victory music. Like in the early 2000s, People would have heard a roar of, our God is an awesome God, he reigns from heaven above. Or in the 1990s, it would be, shout to the Lord, all the earth, let us sing. For decades, maybe even centuries, it would have been, amazing grace. That's what I hear at church, not right before a battle. And it's undoubtedly the most awesome renditions of those songs that has ever existed. 
not a fight song, not a pump-up, chest-pounding song, a victory song. From the New Jerusalem, the spiritually pure, undefiled ones, when we're reading this, it's representing language here of virgins, uncorrupted, following the Lamb wherever he goes. Their song, accompanied by messages from victorious angels, goes out to all the nations. God is victorious. Babylon has fallen. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength into the cup of his anger. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Babylon, representing all beast-like nations, has fallen. There's that sense of time again. Remember week two when we talked about time and I made everybody's heads hurt so much and gave you a life vest and all that? Since Babylon has fallen, that's past tense, and representing a definitive completion of a pending reality still yet to come, It's an outside-of-time message saying it's done. It's certain. It's happened. Calling everyone everywhere to repentance with the eternal gospel, as we read about in chapter 14, verse 6. The eternal gospel, the everlasting, never-threatened good news. Babylon, Rome, your oppressors, their time is done. This is good news, people. Hear it, celebrate it, proclaim it, repent and believe it. Final justice over the enemy is certain and forthcoming. Chapter 14, verses 14 on, presents a stark choice for the seven churches? Will they endure and resist the lure and the temptation of Babylon? Or will they follow the beast and suffer the same defeat? Then I looked and behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle In his hand, who's that? (laughs) That's Jesus. That's the cloud rider. King Jesus, as we learned earlier, cloud riding, emblematic of what? The day of the Lord. The coming day of judgment and salvation, depending on what choice you're making. He's also now got a sharp sickle in his hand, kind of like a pagan image of a grim reaper, right? Ready for a harvest. Because in the rest of chapter 14, there are two harvests. There's the harvest of grain, 
a gathering to himself of believers. No wonder Jesus constantly was talking about agricultural parables in the Gospels in his teaching time on earth. Matthew 13, 37, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. He saw the harvest coming. When those of good, righteous soil receiving his word and his message would bear great fruit and he will gather them all to himself in the harvest of grain. That's harvest number one. And then there's the harvest of the wine grapes. We have a sort of alcohol representation here with humanity's intoxication with evil. Stamped out. Like you will crush grapes to make wine. He who comes on the cloud either either comes as a gospel sower or a just reaper. Verse 20. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress. Blood will be paid as a just payment for sin. It's dire. And always has been that way with temple sacrifices and the cross on Good Friday. This is why, despite what many of us want to picture in terms of the conquering Jesus, why he will always still be the slain, bloodied lamb. His robe dipped in his blood. An ever-present reminder of what he did, how he conquered. How people conquer in his name and the futility and the failure of all who reject his blood. It's getting a little dark, isn't it? A little tough to read. Yeah, remember the toughness of that dreaded chapter nine from last week. This week is is battle. Next week is God's victory amidst rebellion. The bulls of wrath fully poured out. The great reveal is as bold and rich as is necessary to recall people to repentance. And as a call for his church to not be deceived, even amidst seasons of dwindling hope, God will be glorified and is worthy. Write that on your hands your actions, and your foreheads, your thoughts. God is victorious and will be glorified. And our great enemy stands and insists with snake-like deception, no, he won't. This is a losing side. And in the end, Armageddon is coming near. We hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's study. If you're interested in giving for ministry and service information and much more, visit our website at timberlinechurch.org. 
Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.